Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. This is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Nikki Lovegrove. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about it at crawford.anu.edu.au. Today on the podcast, we're going to pull together a few strings from a few of our recent episodes. Regular listeners would have heard Professor Mark Reed riffing on how research can have greater social and policy impact. They would have also heard community engagement expert and former Obama advisor Paul Schmitz talking about the importance of hearing marginalised voices. And more recently, they would have heard former Australian chief scientist Ian Chubb pondering whether scientists and policymakers can really get along. I'm joined today by two women who are working at the coalface of research impact, community engagement, and the odd coupling of researchers with industry. Their work is demonstrating how these issues relate and why they are important to policymakers. With me here are team members from the ANU's Next Generation Engagement Program, and one of those is the person who I recently co-hosted with on a podcast about populism, that's Sarah Bice. Sarah is Associate Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU, where she is also Vice-Chancellor's Future Scheme Senior Research Fellow for her work as Research Director for the Next Generation Engagement Program, and that's something we're going to hear a lot about today. Sarah is an American-born Australian who is looking forward to a Magpie victory in the upcoming AFL Grand Final. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, thanks, Karen the Pies. (laughs) How will you be spending that match? Will you be watching through your fingers? Unfortunately, I'm going to be on a plane, so I'll have to see it in retrospect, but I'm sure that we will be assured victory. Okay, yeah, there's no doubt about that at None all. None whatsoever. In your mind. We'll, ch- no, we'll check up on that next week, time we've got you on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> We're also joined today by Kirsty O'Connell, who is Director of the Engagement People and Industry Director for the Next Generation Engagement Program. Kirsty is a Community Engagement and Communication Specialist with over two decades of experience in the infrastructure sector. During that time, she has led communication and engagement for more than $17 billion in transformational infrastructure projects. And according to the bio I've got in front of me, Kirsty is also a New South Wales farmer on the weekends and a frustrated rock band drummer who is always up for a jam. Welcome, Kirsty. Thanks, Nikki. Good to be here. So it sounds like you're in pretty good company with Sarah. You're a rock drummer and Sarah, you're a former rock radio presenter. If I was going to a rock music trivia night, which one of you would I want on my team? Oh, look. I We're think inseparable. <laughs> I like how I'm collaborative and you're competitive. This is why we work together so well, Nikki. So basically, I should just get the pair of you and then I'll be sorted for my rock. You would win the slab of beer. Okay, great. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Before we get to today's discussion, just a reminder to our listeners that we're really keen to get your thoughts on this or any of our other podcasts. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or just drop us a line by good old email. That's podcast at policyforum.net. 
And don't forget to hang around after the interview because we'll be highlighting some of your recent comments across the Policy Forum channels. And Sarah and Kirsty have both kindly agreed to stick around to join that conversation. For now, let's jump straight into the discussion. And I'm going to start by talking about the work that you've both recently been doing, which has been looking at something that almost anyone who listens to this podcast experiences in their daily lives, and that's infrastructure. So we engage with infrastructure every time we travel by road, by rail, or by a bicycle path, every time we flick on a light or send someone a text. And in Australia at the moment, we're seeing intensive infrastructure delivery and community protests um, in response to some of these major projects. So what's going on? Why is infrastructure so important right now? Perhaps I'll hear from you, Sarah. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't go to Kirsty first because she's led $17 billion in infrastructure projects. We know uh, worldwide right now, we are in an incredibly intensive period of infrastructure delivery. A couple of years ago, the McKinsey Global Institute came out with a worldwide study that estimated that we have a $57 trillion infrastructure need across the world. So now is a time when we need infrastructure. It's also a time when more governments than ever have access to funds to put into infrastructure. So within Australia, we can see that um, two budgets ago, we saw approximately $100 billion put in to the infrastructure budget for Australia. Uh, we've got that many projects currently on the books. Kirsty and I did a study a couple of years ago, and we looked at just the east coast of Australia, and we saw within that that there were approximately $20 billion in planned projects that were then canceled, delayed, mothballed, or delivered, but not as originally intended, uh, largely due to community protest and policy backflipping. So right now, infrastructure is intensive. There's a huge need, but we're also seeing an increasing level of community protest and opposition and projects that are being stalled or being delayed. And it's very visible. So Kirsty, could you talk a little bit about some of this community opposition? Why is there so much uh, backlash against some of the major infrastructure projects that we're delivering at the moment? As a professional, I'm seeing that communities are becoming increasingly well-informed. And we're seeing people really wanting to play their role as a citizen and to be involved right back at the project selection stage. So for policymakers, this is really relevant. People want to participate in the discussion. They want to participate in selection. And they do have their own vision for what their communities could and should look like. So they're really wanting for that to be heard. From my own personal experience, um, communities are really willing and individuals in communities are really willing to share with you their local knowledge. And if you're clever in capturing that local knowledge, you do actually add a lot to your project. So I think the friction that we're seeing is probably just a product of there being more projects delivered at an increasing rate. So that intensification of uh, delivery effort is really that's what's causing the intensification of some pockets of community opposition. And I'll say from the outset, many projects get delivered successfully, but $20 billion in projects that have been delayed or mothballed is, is a really significant figure. So we need to get a lot better at delivering projects in a way that sits well with communities. One of the things, Nikki, that we've seen come out of early research that we've done, and some of this is anecdotal, so it hasn't all been written up, but we hear it time and again, is that in this time, particularly within Australia, where infrastructure delivery is quite intensive. So I can give you an example from uh, outside my own front door in Melbourne. We've got the Melbourne Metro Tunnel happening, but at the same time, I had new gas mains being put in. At the same time, there was work being done 
on the footpath. And so for me, I was just seeing lots of dust and dirt in places where my kids couldn't play because there were witches' hats and lots of jackhammering. But those were separate projects. And so one of the things that we're seeing is that Historically, because infrastructure delivery has not necessarily been so intensive, meaning that it's not all these projects happening at the same time, approaches to community engagement have occurred on a project-by-project basis. So the Metro Tunnel could come and speak to me, and it was very unlikely that I was also going to be experiencing the waterworks and the NBN and the new gas main at the same time. And what we're hearing anecdotally from professionals in the field, people who practice community engagement, is that in some places, like in Western Sydney, for example, they're experiencing community opposition, but it's not because the community is opposed to their particular project. It's because they're just opposed to more projects, more infrastructure, and they may have had a bad experience with another project. So we've got quite a lot of work to do with the sector to establish ways to deal with these cumulative impacts of intensive infrastructure delivery, unlike any we've seen historically. So as we heard on the last podcast where we were looking at community engagement, it's a term that the private sector and policymakers love to throw around. They love to claim that they're doing it, that they're engaging with the community. In Australia, how is infrastructure going generally when it comes to community engagement? Look, I think it's fair to say that the infrastructure sector has taken a massive step forward in terms of how it views communities. And certainly the engagement is starting to happen earlier uh, and it's starting to be, I believe, a lot more genuine in terms of not just being straight information to communities. It's about actually having a conversation and seeing what value can be gleaned from those conversations. And where possible, giving people a greater role in project selection and planning so that they really understand how things are coming together. But I think we still have a way to go, and it would be fair to say that industry acknowledge that we have a way to go in terms of really being able to realise the full value of engagement. And the starting point for that is is having an evidence base so that we can demonstrate, yes, there is value, this is how it plays out in the project context, um, and to really be able to make that argument in the infrastructure setting for greater involvement of communities. I think as well, one of the things that we're seeing is changes in policymaking and regulation. Now, I'm a bit loath to use the term evidence-based policy, and maybe, Nikki, we can talk about that on another pod, or we've probably already covered it. But there is this need for evidence, and at the same time, there is an increasing movement towards having regulation or government policy which requires community engagement. So, for example, last year in New South Wales, they did a full review of their environment and social impact assessment regulation, and as part of that, they have made new recommendations around the stakeholder engagement that's required for their social impact assessments. So I think one of the things that we're seeing in this time of intensive infrastructure delivery is both an improvement in community engagement practice, so we're seeing professionals who really are genuinely committed to engagement They're also better trained than ever before. And we're also seeing an aligned shift in policy and regulation to both require and guide community or stakeholder engagement. And so those two things are something that we're looking at in our own research and under this program of work, because we're very interested in how can policy support best practice community engagement? And also to what extent does that need to be regulated? To what extent is that something that's voluntary? To what extent is that something that should rest within, for example, industry standards? 
as opposed to formalized regulation. Can I just add to that actually that I think one of the conversations that we've had that's been really interesting with industry is when you're talking to people who are leaders in engagement, many of them are actually quite anti the idea of regulation because they feel it would result in a dumbing down of of the engagement process. And certainly for the leaders in engagement delivery, I think that's a fair comment. You know, you don't want to set a standard that then becomes the standard. So there's some really interesting decisions to be made around the policy setting to make sure that you incentivize good practice, but at the same time, you don't disincentivize those people who are innovators in the field. You really want to let them do their best. I think it's a really important point. And if we look to the related field of corporate social responsibility and sustainable development, where since 1998, we've seen a great growth in reporting standards and also regulatory requirements around things that are uh, what I would call non-traditional. So they're not financial project risk. There are things like environmental conservation, mitigation of environmental impacts, labor standards, human rights standards, these types of things. But what's happened in the CSR, corporate social responsibility space, which I think we can learn from for community engagement, is two things. One, uh, corporations have really pushed back against formalized regulation. Now, some people, cynics, would argue that this has occurred because those corporations simply don't want to be regulated. And so they've created a lot of voluntary initiatives, which have actually risen up from the corporations themselves. The alternative to that is we can have more innovation if we have voluntary frameworks. So it's much more flexible. It's much more responsive. Policy, unfortunately, tends to be quite slow and regulation even slower. So there are some arguments for and against both of these options. But I think what's interesting for community engagement is we're not having to reinvent the wheel. We can look to things like sustainable development and corporate social responsibility and see how things have gone there so that we can take the good bits and also avoid the bad. One of the things we see in corporate social responsibility today is that there are well over 400 different governance frameworks available to those who are working in that field to choose from. And so what we want to do is get a nice balance in community engagement between structures and frameworks, flexibility, agility, without having this proliferation of so many frameworks that it actually becomes useless. Kind of sounds like the bread problem. You just want to buy a loaf of bread and you go to the grocery store and you've got a million different brands to choose from. So it's not so clear which one you should buy. I want to turn now to a different thread of this conversation and bring in a discussion about research and as we discussed, the, the evidence base behind our policymaking. Where does research fit into how big infrastructure projects engage with um, communities? And perhaps you want to talk about your own project, the Next Generation Engagement Project here. Yeah, absolutely. The whole impetus for the Next Generation Engagement Project was the fact that we had um, some incredibly uh, large projects that were really being slowed down and in some cases stopped because they didn't have the settings right in terms of how they engaged and built relationships with communities. And so out of that, industry was sort of saying, look, we need to work out how to do this better. And one of the first steps is to go looking for an evidence base, to go looking for research to demonstrate how it's being done well elsewhere, and also to understand what what normal looks like. You know, what's the baseline? How are we performing? And how do we sort of then set out to do better than the baseline? And so industry were really talking to the Next Generation Engagement Project and saying, guys, we have these issues. We need to to fill in the knowledge gaps. And we think a way to do that 
is to start with some evidence-based research so that we've then got an understanding of, of what that baseline looks like in industry and we can then test in real time with this unprecedented program of work, really test um, how different innovations are working and what result they achieve against that baseline. I think one of the things that was really interesting for me when we were initially starting on this program of work uh, was how unique it was because I had people from industry like Kirsty coming to me and saying, you know what, we've got these issues. We're not quite sure what to do. Now, that's not entirely unusual. This happens, and a lot of academics do what we call research consulting. And certainly at the Crawford School, we do a lot of work for both the Commonwealth, state, and territory governments where policymakers come with a defined problem. What's interesting here, though, is that Usually the approach is either a policymaker comes to you and says, well, I've got this problem, so you tell me how to solve it. Or alternatively, as a researcher, you spend heaps of time in the library, and I'm a nerd, so I love that, but you spend this time in the library, and then you say, okay, well, from the literature, here's a problem, and you then basically shop that problem around with policymakers and industry. Here's something I prepared earlier. Give me 10000 bucks to pay me to figure it out. That's not what we did here. We had industry coming to us and saying, you know what, we know something's going on here. We know the time is right to examine this. And instead of us saying, okay, well, here's your questions. Here's what we need to do. We actually then co-designed the research with industry and government partners. And we helped them through the process to determine what their research questions were, what their priority research needs were, and what the projects might look like that would begin to answer those questions. So this is interesting because it's not just me as a researcher and my colleagues as researchers saying, this is what we think you need to do. It's actually us working to build the capacity of people in industry and government to be able to design and ask their own research questions. From an industry perspective, that approach, and, and really it was Sarah's approach, of um, you know the the co-creative approach to research was so well received, and people working in engagement really saw that as being very true to the principles of what they do too. So in the same way that a person working in engagement for an infrastructure project is trying to be respectful of the knowledge that local communities have as they shape that project up and deliver it, I think the research approach that T Sarah took enabled us to be very respectful of. The, the knowledge that industry has developed on this topic. They really do understand quite a lot about what the problem is. They're looking for some assistance in terms of uh, verbalising that and then solving it. And that co-creative approach was just absolutely perfect um, for that kind of a problem and that audience. So industry is obviously interested in getting more knowledge about and more of an evidence base about how to best engage with the community why do they go to academics? Why don't they just outsource it to consultants? They definitely could. And in a lot of cases, as we know from the current Commonwealth government situation, they do. What's different here is that normally when we go to a consultant, because of the high costs and also because of the confidentiality, you're doing that on a project-by-project -project basis. And so it would be very common for um, an infrastructure delivery firm to seek consulting on a particular aspect of something they're delivering and get advice via consultancies. What we're doing, though, is quite different because this is a sector-wide program of work. And so for the first time, what we're attempting to do with groups across the sector, so in our pilot phase, we had 25 industry, government, and civil society partners 
involved. And that type of consortium work is not something that's usually possible through the consultancy model. I think the other aspect of what we're doing that's different is that uh, consultancies necessarily need to achieve multipliers. They need to make money. And as much as I love to make money, what we're doing here is really about generating knowledge and best practice. And so we're able to really commit the resources and the time that's required to deliver answers for industry uh, that are unique, that are really tailored to their needs, and that allow the space for this co-design where they're involved in both defining and analyzing and we hope solving the problems. Absolutely. I think it's not just the connection between uh, you know, an individual in industry or a certain organization and a researcher. It's actually about creating connections within industry as well. And that was one of the things we had fabulous feedback on through the pilot phase was the fact that the 25 industry partners and then the 80 plus organizations that involve. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Engaged with the pilot, really appreciated having the space created to have this conversation about, hey, what's going on with community engagement? What's going wrong? What's going right? How do we do this stuff a little more intelligently and take a little bit less skin off each other through this process? And so those relationships and that relationship building was a really valuable part of the exercise. And I don't think you get that when you just go to one particular organisation and say, hey, please solve this one problem for me. When you have a large complex suite of problems like this, it needs a collective effort. It's bigger than one organization. And if we think back to the part of a couple of weeks ago with Professor Mark Reed, who spoke about research impact, when we asked him, what is it that generates good impact? He consistently went back to the trust between those participating in the research, between the researchers, industry and government, and the relationships that are built. And so I think, you know, it makes me feel really positive about what we're doing here and the potential for policy and regulatory and social and project impact because we we are establishing a network, we are establishing relationships, and this is genuinely a sector-wide movement to attempt to answer some questions that they themselves have defined. So we have spoken on recent podcasts about how and why scientists and policymakers don't speak to each other and we know that policy and um, academia can often seem worlds apart. What about academia and industry? Is it difficult for researchers to make themselves understood by industry? Can you understand me, Kirsty? Yeah, I think, I think we, have, we have a great working relationship. I think that's actually, with, without any humour at all, I think that's been a big part of the success is that we have had that great communication and so there's been a really clear understanding from the outset of where industry participants are coming from, where the research sector is coming from. And indeed, I think there was a lot of excitement when we say we had 25 industry partners. Some of those were um, governments and policymakers within governments. So they were really excited to be part of something that connected them with the commercial side of industry, but also with the research sector. And so, yeah, having, having that great understanding and a common language from the outset, I think was really 
really critical to the success of the pilot and to the ongoing program. I think on the other hand, too, if you know, if I think about being in a research environment and being a professional academic, we do have to tend to have very traditional ways of doing things. We tend to communicate through journal articles, and that's absolutely critical. There's a phrase in academia, publish or perish, and it's the only way to advance your career. Even as universities consistently now are saying, we want to be engaged universities, there's an entire field of study now about the entrepreneurial university, the university that goes out and really makes a difference in the world. But even as universities are shifting towards this language and saying that these are the things that they value, the researchers within them are still measured on very traditional academic outputs. So you can have as many engaged projects as you want, but if you're not writing a journal article from those, you're probably not going to advance your career. And I think one of the things that's happened in this project is that we have been very fortunate because there are a lot of researchers who have been involved and who are involved and who will be involved to work with researchers who are brave and who are willing to set aside those traditional indicators to say, you know what, I really want to do this. I really want to be engaged. And so that really pushes us to publish in different ways and in different formats. So things like we run an e-newsletter for our partners, which gives them updates in very conversational tone about the work that we're doing. We're on Twitter, which, you know, take it or leave it, but it's out there and we use it. We do podcasts. We present at all kinds of industry forums, which are not academic conferences. We do training for our research partners. So we'll actually go in and sit down with them and say, here's some of the most up-to-date research that we've completed, and now we can train your staff in that. So I think another part of this is the courage and the willingness of the researchers who are involved in what is a bit of a weird research project um, to put aside those traditional indicators and to really attempt to communicate in new and different ways. I think you might take the mantra of problem solve or perish. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Gracie. We'll, I will take that. Well, actually, another one on that, we've published a few pieces on Policy Forum on this issue, and we've had collaborate or perish as well. So you really need to engage with industry if you are going to continue your relevance. I want to talk about, I guess, the other side of this, this triangle of policy, academia, and industry. How do industry and policy tend to relate together on infrastructure? Is there, is there good collaboration between those two sides? In my experience, there has been. I don't know that anyone would say, hey, job done, we've got the policy settings absolutely right around engagement. But there is certainly a willingness from both sides to look for better mechanisms um, and a very keen interest to learn from what's happening globally, not just in Australia, because most of the industry partners that we have are actually global organisations. So there's very much a, a willingness to say, hey, what works well? How can we adapt? How can we adapt that to our context? And also equally, what can we take? from our context, from this huge $100 billion effort, what can we learn from this? Because if we just build a bunch of railway lines and bridges and roads and things like that, and we don't actually learn something from it to share with our colleagues globally, then we've probably missed the opportunity. Just going back to that notion of relationships and the importance of relationships, one of the bits of feedback that we got from the pilot phase was that the participants were really pleased about the opportunity, so I should explain to people, we held a national series of facilitated workshops 
which was where we did the research co-design to determine what the questions were and what the priority research themes were. And if anyone is interested in those, all of that's available on our website, which is nextgenengagement.org. What we heard back from participants uh, who were in those workshops, though, was that one of the things they valued most was the opportunity to be in the room with people from government or conversely, people from industry, and also to be in the room with people who represented different roles. So one of the things that we aimed to do was not just to talk to community engagement specialists when we were defining this research. We had the entire infrastructure value chain in the room at one time. This was all the way from the institutional investors who provide the funding for these major projects through to the policymakers who are setting the regulations through to engineers. We had project managers. We had communications and marketing specialists. And we had the community engagement experts. So this this opportunity for industry and government to speak to each other and to really engage, as it were, on an issue that's important to them, that was that was quite critical for this project. And I think it's one of the reasons that it's been successful so far. So what does the future hold for this space? Do you think that we're going to see a real improvement in the way that governments and industry engage with communities when it comes to rolling out these, these massive projects that have big impacts on our lives? Absolutely. We've seen continuous improvement over the last decade. And if you compare back to, say, two decades ago when I was starting out, the practice is unrecognisable. But what we've got an opportunity to to do with the Next Gen Engagement Project is to help the industry take a step change. So it's it's not just an incremental improvement. It's about learning from our peers globally and saying, how can we really supercharge this effort and do it so much better than we've done it before? And we believe that's what's going to come out of this program of work over the next five years. I'm an optimist and I remain equally hopeful about this. I started out my career working directly with communities, mostly in developing countries who were affected by large-scale mining oil and gas projects. So I've spent a lot of time in places like remote Papua New Guinea, parts of Fiji, remote parts of Australia, seeing how communities were affected. And that for me has been uh, extraordinarily shaping to me as a person, but also to my career. And it's why I do this research. I genuinely believe that if we work with the parties who are producing impacts and who are setting the policy and regulation, which either mitigate or shape those impacts, we can deliver more benefits, reduce negative environmental and social impacts, and achieve a smoother process for communities. So I'm fully bought into this and I've seen on the ground how people can be affected when things don't go well. And I think it is possible um, through work like this to to improve and to, as Kirsty says, to have a step change or from an academic perspective, a paradigm shift. Well, I for one definitely enjoy being able to cycle on a bike path and text my friends and flick my lights on. So I really hope for all our sakes that it, it does continue to improve. Uh, Kirsty and Sarah, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Nikki. That was Sarah Bice and Kirsty O'Connell chatting with me there, and they're hanging around to help discuss some of the listener comments and feedback that we've received from Policy Forum over the last week or so. So a big thank you to everyone who has submitted um, comments about our content. We really appreciate all the feedback, and we're going to start by discussing a piece by Stephen Nagy, which has received a lot of attention last week. It's called Speak Softly and Carry Economic Gifts, 
how Japan can deal with Trump unilateralism. In the piece, Stephen was arguing that Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is about to enjoy a period of domestic political stability, and that's a good thing because he's going to need all of it to deal with the foreign policy headaches the Trump administration is throwing his way. On Twitter, TSR50 commented, Totally agree with Stephen. Well thought out piece covering all pivots slash scenarios. Exciting times ahead. Thanks for that comment, TSR50. I'm not sure I'd call it exciting, but definitely something I'll be paying attention to. On Policy Forum, Jessica commented, While the White House's behaviour is described as being destabilising, it must be stated that there are only two more years until the next presidential election and the midterms of this year. In the grand scheme of things, two years is not too long for there to be a potentially new president. And if the Democrats claim a majority in both houses, then it can be argued that would decrease Trump's power. Sarah, as an American-born Australian, I imagine you've got some thoughts on the matter. What do you reckon? Will Trump be kicked out of office in two years' time? Oh, do we have to wait two years, Nikki? I think the answer is we really don't know. Those midterm elections coming up are going to be fascinating for those of us who are into this kind of thing to watch. I certainly will be watching really closely, particularly because leading up to Trump's election, the polls were saying that this wasn't going to happen. Hillary was going to get in. There was only one group. I think there are 365. Uh, they were saying, you know what, Trump has a much better chance than we all expect. And so we're seeing very similar figures now leading into the midterms. There's going to be this kind of um, tide of Democrats flowing into the House of Representatives and potentially even into the Senate. And so I'm very reluctant to jump on that bandwagon because we have seen American voters turn out in what are largely unpredicted, I'm not saying unpredictable, but unpredicted ways in recent years. And I think that what will be interesting as well is with the Kavanaugh hearings currently occurring around the Supreme Court, I'm personally wondering if that may mobilize and motivate a certain group of voters who feel that their more conservative views, particularly if he's not appointed, uh, may not be heard. So I think there's a lot of factors that are happening in the U.S. now that may feed into what would be um, an unpredicted result. Two more years, who knows? If Bob Woodward does his work and has anything to say about it, uh, maybe it'll be less time. What about you, Kirsty? Will you be watching the US election closely? Definitely. Do you know, I think the thing that was fascinating about the US election and even about things like Brexit and more recent results in the Australian election sphere is the fact that I think the, the lesson for people is the need to listen to the average person and to tune into the concerns of the average person. So I think the result in two years depends on how well the Democrats go in terms of understanding the concerns of the average American. The result that, that came out may have been a perverse one, but I think it was rooted in the fact that the average American didn't feel that they were doing too well. So do the Democrats have an answer to that? That might be the real question, hey. So the next article I want to discuss is one by John Coyne. It was called Drug Response Out of Tune, Music Festival Goers Need Pill Testing, Not a Punitive Premier. So this is about the recent drug-related deaths deaths at the DEFCON 1 Music Festival in Australia. And John Coyne argued that the New South Wales government's response ignores the evidence in favour of pill testing. So pill testing is basically allowing young people to get their drugs and their pills tested at festivals to know what substances are in them and whether or not they're likely to be life-threatening. Gillian on Twitter commented, Does pill testing extend to testing methamphetamines? Ice? There are some pills that may be less sympathetic than others, e.g. ones that don't make people aggressive and dangerous. 
So I think what Gillian is saying here is that we may be more sympathetic to pill testing for some drugs than we are for others. Any thoughts on, on this one, Sarah? How do we draw the line about drug policy given the enormous range of impacts that it can have on people and society? I think this is an extraordinarily difficult one because there's certainly a rational argument to be made for pill testing, especially because if we admit that young people at festivals, this is largely a part of the Australian festival culture, it's very likely that people are going to do this, whether it's illegal or not. And so if we have the technology to be able to test on site and to be able to give people a read on what it is that they are putting into their bodies, I think rationally we say, well, yes, we should probably do that. And that's certainly what the article argues. The question then becomes, though, where do you set the boundaries? Because even as a researcher, when I look at this statement, which is a great one, so thank you, Gillian, but even here, there are some assumptions. For example, that certain people or people will act a certain way on ice as opposed to other pills. Now, I don't know that much about ice, except that it's really bad, but maybe some people respond to ice differently than others. Certainly, people respond to alcohol very differently. And so the question then becomes, how do you set those boundaries? Is it a drug-based boundary? Is it around certain types of users? Is it around certain types of events? And this is where policymaking is so challenging, because we're in a space here where it's difficult to determine what are the characteristics of of the boundaries? Is it about the pill itself? Is it about the user? Is it about the type of festival? Uh, And then how, how do you set those boundaries? So I think the testing idea is great. And Gillian's question here raises that question of how do you set boundaries uh, and what should they be about? I have no answers. I think you've got to think about, you know, what's the objective here? If the objective is keeping young people safe and healthy, regardless of what activity they're involved in, whether they're going to a music festival or wherever they're going to be, you know, I think we actually need to think about the behavioural drivers as to why they would be using recreational drugs of any kind and whether there are some policy settings needed to address that. And probably the last and most memorable big health push that I can think of was the response to HIV through the the 80s and 90s and the whole safe sex push. So I think we need to apply a little bit of that thinking to drug use. You know, if the if the objective is public safety, then, you know, how do we actually address what's happening underneath that rather than thinking, you know, that it's inevitable that people will go to a music festival and use drugs? You know, why would they do that? And how can we respond to that underlying driver? Thanks to you both for those thoughts. You can definitely help me out on this last question, last comment rather. So just to demonstrate that we we don't only highlight the positive ones, I've got a comment from George on Policy Forum in response to the podcast that you and I did, Sarah, recently on the topic of populism. That podcast was with Duncan McDonnell, Jill Shepard and Paul Kenny and was looking at how populism is shaping policy in democracies around the world. George commented, parasite establishment academics will never understand and advocate for populism. What do you reckon, Sarah? Are academics parasites? Oh, well, George, I really appreciate that he was willing to go on and write the comment. It's a bit hurtful to be called a parasite, and it's very hard for me as an individual to consider myself establishment when I grew up in a trailer in North Carolina and know a lot of people who are part of populist movements. But I think think what we can take from George's comment is actually a lot of what we talked about in that podcast, which was that populism has been conflated with some very negative agendas, which are quite different to the original 
ideals and intent of populism. So I myself on that podcast talked about how, at least in the United States, as far back as 1892 with the Omaha platform, the Populist Party was a movement of farmers. It was a movement of people who were connected to the land. They were interested in an eight-hour workday. They wanted secret ballots. They wanted direct election to the U.S. Senate. They had really reasonable ideas and many ideas that were then adopted by U.S. major parties. And so I think if we can take anything away from George's comment here, it's that today populism is very much being used as a dirty word. And if we do look at it historically, and we're a bit more even-handed with populism, and I think Duncan uh, McDonald, who was on the show, would agree, it, it does have a different meaning to that that's consistently being applied, particularly in mainstream media. Well, a big thanks to George for that comment and a big thank you to everyone who commented. A reminder, please keep sending them in. That also includes any suggestions you might have for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We're based here at the Australian National University and we get a lot of talent coming through. And so we have a lot of capacity to look into whatever topics that you might be interested in relating to policy in the Asia Pacific. So please drop us a line and you might inspire the next podcast. You can reach us on Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just give us a good old email, podcast at policyforum.net. And finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you could consider giving us a big favor and leaving us a quick review on iTunes. Only takes about 30 seconds to just find that fifth star and click on it. It'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about this pod. We'll be back next week for another episode, but until then, from me, Nikki Lovegrove. Bye for now.